Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the podcast segment of the show that's not broadcast on station KLA. Our guest for this 447th show is Dr. Akhil Amar, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University, and we're going to be talking about the words that made us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. Our history buffs are Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. And Terry, why don't you start us off? All right. Thank you. Yeah, Akhil, towards the end of the book, um, you pose some really interesting questions. You mentioned that the first thing that a president must do in office is swear an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And then you say that which of our past presidents during this time period of 1760 to 1840 did this job well and which did not? Can you talk about that, please? Yeah. So um, uh, I begin... Uh, the book um, with actually John Adams and a story that, that he is remembering 50 years later. He says the American Revolution really begins actually before most people um, uh, thought. Um, it begins in, in Massachusetts in 1760 to 61. Most people start the story 1763, 64 with the end of the French and Indian War and the Stamp Act and all the rest. So, so I begin with John Adams and I'm so grateful to him because Actually, he, he gives me chapter one, and, he, and he's a really interesting storyteller, um, and, and he's a good and, and, and hardworking and, and decent and honorable and honest um, fellow, and he's a bad president. And he's a bad president. Um, that's not just my personal judgment, because he's the only one who doesn't get reelected of, of the first five. Mm. Um, mm. Washington gets reelected, and so does Jefferson and, and Madison and Monroe. And John Adams doesn't get reelected because he's a bad president, because he's too thin-skinned, and he makes it a crime to criticize Donald Trump. I mean, John Adams, okay? <laughs> and, and the Freudian slip there. I, I was teasing, of course. Uh, but a president can't actually be too thin-skinned. The president has to understand he serves others, and others get to criticize him. Um, and look, at the end of the day, Adams does yield um, a, a more gracefully, frankly, than uh, uh, Trump did. Um, and it's a good for him. Um, but um, Adams is ultimately it can't I, I, I can't crown him, uh, label him a successful president because the American people didn't because they threw him out. And, and he's the only one of the early presidents to whom that happened. And, and then you have to ask, why did they? And you either have to blame the American people or you have to blame him. And at the end of the day, I think the American people were right, and he's to blame because the American people said you can't shut down discourse. You can't um, uh, try to um, stifle the conversation. And the conversation includes criticism of you. And when you not only sign this thing called the Sedition Act, part of the Alien Sedition Acts of 1798, you not only sign it into law, but you enforce it um, uh, against people who are basically merely kind of um, uh, opposition party critics to your administration, you, uh, that, that's wrong. You can't be a, a reckoned a, a good or great president. I love David McCullough. He's a friend of mine. His grandson of the same name is one of my favorite students of all time. He writes a great book about John Adams, but because David is just too nice a person, he doesn't dwell at great length on the Sedition Act, but because I'm a constitutional scholar, I'm going to have to basically tell you 
um, you know, why um, Adams loses. And he loses because he makes it a crime to criticize Adams. Now, it's also true, one other thing, that the Constitution is rigged against the North in certain ways because um, the three-fifths clause gives Southern candidates extra clout because um, Southern states, which have a lot of slaves, are getting extra electoral votes because of slavery. Jefferson wins a lot of extra electoral votes um, because of slavery. If you take slavery away, Jefferson basically in 1800 wins mainly the South. Adams wins mainly the North. Without those Southern um, um, extra electoral votes because of slavery, um, uh, actually Adams would have, would have won his bid for, for re-election. So, um, but it shouldn't have even been close um, if he had been uh, actually uh, abiding by proper principles of free speech and free press, which he wasn't. Well, thank okay. you. Brett. So one of the struggles that I have teaching my students about the Constitution is this idea that the Constitution as written and the Bill of Rights don't exist because they're easy to understand and, and people's best ideas. They exist because that's the agreement that could get the votes to pass. Um, where do you see the most people kind of abandoning their their position to get something that will uh, pass muster versus really kind of sticking to their guns on both sides? So if you're a small D Democrat, as I'm not, I'm not talking about the Democratic versus the Republican Party, um, but a small D Democrat, a small R Republican, you actually believe that at least on some things, there's a wisdom uh, of crowds there. There's a wisdom of the people. Um, and I think that there is actually, to a considerable extent, um, the Constitution is learning from building on the wisdom of Americans as in, embedded in state constitutional precursors, America in general, I think, is picking some pretty impressive people to be president, and that's just Americans picking the, the right folks. So a lot of the Constitution, yes, if you say, well, they're pandering to some extent because they need to get popular buy-in, yes, but a lot of times the people, or even ordinary people, if you add a lot of them together, they're they actually have a wisdom. You're, you know, this is an Iowa-based um, uh, 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 podcast. If you are trying to figure out how, how much a heifer weighs or something at the county fair, it's not a bad idea or how many jelly beans there are in a jar because that's the, you know, the competition. If you poll everyone at the county fair about how much that heifer weighs, how many jelly beans there are in that jar, if you, count, if you ask everyone at the fair and you pick the middle person, you're going to be pretty close to spot on, in fact. That's the wisdom of, of crowds. So, so um, I think the place where it fails the most is when it comes to slavery, because you needed to get South Carolina on board because you don't want to have a, a, a southern border um, um, with South Carolinians independent, and maybe they'll ally today with Britain and tomorrow with, with Spain and, and in, in 2020 with Putin or something. So you have, to get, you, know, you have to have a united front. You're trying to create an island nation, kind of like Britain. You're a unified nation uh, like Britain after England and Scotland combined, a perfect union. So in order to get that, you have to actually um, pander to the South Carolinians, and they're going to insist that you have all sorts of pro-slavery compromises like the three-fifths clause that turn out to be very bad things. And in the end of the day, um, that, that's, that the North 
effort to accommodate the South, which is not entirely successful, is going to lead the deep South is going to lead to a civil war. An analogy. In order to beat Hitler in 1941, Americans have to basically ally with Stalin. Even though Stalin and America have very different visions of the world, we ally, we beat Hitler, but very soon thereafter we start to go in different ways. And even today, you know, we're not on the same page on Ukraine and other things. Well, the, the North, which is increasingly abolitionist, um, and the, the deep South, South Carolina, which is still very wedded to slavery, they had to create a, a kind of a unified front. So, so the North had to make all sorts of pro-slavery compromises that turn out not to age very well. And that's going to that's gonna be my next volume. That's going to be the words that made us equal America's constitutional mm-hmm. conversation 1840 to 1920. Um, when I show you how this um, uh, perfect union actually um, ends up breaking up and then getting put back together. Okay. Um, I, I'm just curious. I'm, I'm glad you said it. one of the questions I had written down here was the idea of concepts of freedom and how that, that idea of what it means to be free, uh, how that has changed. Cause it seems to me that the, the initial conversations that were had and the compromises that were made just keep cropping back up again as as we continue to try to deal with this idea of uh, the 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 discrepancy between Jefferson's word and words in the Declaration and and the world you're actually living in. Can you give us a little bit of a preview about the those ideas and and how those eyes are ideas are evolving? from 1760 to 1840. Yeah. So um, one of the reasons this is pretty much um, a pro-Washington and pro-Hamilton book um, is that deep down they um, are much, very, much more skeptical at the, uh, by the end of slavery and they actually, in general, put their money where their mouth is. So Washington, he's a slaveholder. That's true. But in my last chapter, which is the death scene of all the, the great founders, um, the, uh, the, the big six, um, Washington, uh, 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 Jefferson, a- um, Adams, Madison, Hamilton, and, and Franklin. But at the end of his life, Washington frees his slaves. And, the, and he's making a statement. And, and at the end of his life, Ben Franklin, they're the, the first two to die. Franklin dies first, is actually making an anti-slavery statement in, in, his, in, in his almost literal dying breath. Good for them. Um, uh, Jefferson, he knew slavery was wrong. As a young person, he, he wrote so passionately and eloquently about it. But um, um, and, he, and he actually envisions a, 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 a West that's going to be free from slavery. Uh, um, authors an early version of a Northwest Ordinance that's going to actually prohibit slavery um, in um, uh, the American um, West. So he begins so promisingly, but. He founds a party to, uh, to champion free speech against John Adams, who's making a crime to criticize John Adams. But the party ends up um, becoming an albatross. It's a Southern party with a Southern base. And he and um, his partner, John, uh, James Madison, end up becoming party men. And at the end of their lives, they don't free their slaves. They actually um, uh, start advocate. They advocate for sending slavery to the West, spreading the virus, the exact opposite of what they believed early on. So if I were making a modern day analogy, I'd say 
are you always going to stick with your party, even when your party is doing bad things? Because I would say uh, uh, Mitt Romney is is skeptical of that, and so is Mitch McConnell, and so is Liz Cheney. Oh, but Kevin McCarthy is a party man, you see. And and so um, and I could talk about similar things within the Democratic Party, of course. But but Thomas Jefferson and James Madison are they know slavery is wrong, but when they die, they don't free their slaves. They've created actually a pro. A, a, a party that has a big southern base it's going to become an increasingly pro-slavery party that will become the party of andrew jackson by 1840 it will later become the party of of, of jefferson davis so um, um and so jefferson and madison are demoted in my narrative because they actually turn out to have negative trajectories on slavery whereas washington is um a promoted um, uh, upgraded in my narrative because he actually um, sees it's wrong and takes steps to actually um, um, uh, put it on a path of extinction, as, as does Franklin. And, and Hamilton's always been basically anti-slavery. Okay, Terry, you're going to get the last question. All right, thank you. Yeah, there's a statement in your book that really resonated with me. You say, a nation that does not understand its history is like a person who suffers amnesia. And without a deep understanding of our collective constitutional past, how can Americans live together? So I ask you, what is it perhaps that we don't fully understand about our past? Um, that it's all we have in common. Um, and that uh, because um, some of us um, uh, we, we don't have race in common. We're, we're different races. We don't have ethnicity in common. Actually, not everyone even speaks English as their um, first language. You don't even quite have language in common. There's great religious variation, um, and, and some people actually, you know, are, um, are, are not um, um, uh, attached to any sort of uh, religious faith or, or tradition. Um, some people, their families came over um, yesterday, other people, their families came over 300 years ago. Some families came in chains. Others came with bullwhips in their hand. So the only thing that we Americans have in common, this is about the words that made us, um, and it's a pun on the U.S. Um, so it's not only that like every country needs a, um, a history, but ours more than anyone else, because our history, our constitution, our institutions, that's what we have in common. Um, my parents came recently. I'm not writing about my ancestors, and yet I can say, oh, I descend from George Washington and, 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 and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and Alexander Hamilton, they're founding fathers for me too, because I'm an American and we all are Americans. This is what we have in common. And, and, and if we don't cling to that, we're going to be Beirut. Um, and unfortunately, um, I think a lot of people in middle America kind of get it um, and get American greatness and American exceptionalism. I, I'm with them, um, but they may not know quite why. Um, the sophisticated folks who go off to fancy Ivy League schools, I, I teach at one of them, actually, a lot of them, have, they don't really understand why America is great. Um, and, and they've sometimes been taught by very, very sophisticated teachers all the bad things in American history. Uh, and there are, you know, some, um, but not all the good things like Americans actually create the first world abolition society. In the ancient, slavery existed everywhere in the world before America was formed. It doesn't begin in 1619. Um, ancient uh, uh, societies, all societies had slavery, but, and, and they had ideas of freeing slaves. But America, 
1775 comes up with the idea of abolition, ending slavery as a system. So we need to understand the bad things. You know, there was slavery, but also the good things. Americans eventually get rid of it. And, and we enfranchise women um, in the 20th century in our Constitution and, 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 and do all sorts of extraordinary things, even in my lifetime. That's what we have in common, is our constitutional history. It's not perfect, but we've actually made amends. We've made improvements. But if you don't know that story about how actually America, even for all its flaws, was better than other societies when it was founded, and it's been getting better still, and it's our job to, to, um, uh, to improve it for our kids. If you don't understand that, then, then we don't have a common a language, we Americans, to talk to each other, and then we're Beirut. All right. We would like to thank our guest for this 447th show, Dr. Akhil Amar, Sterling Professor of Law at Yale University, who talked to us about the words that made us America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Terry Toppler. You can listen to ROI as it is being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM, and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 9.30 p.m. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previously recorded shows can be heard at SoundCloud.com. Just put K-A-L-A Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station K-A-L-A, St. Ambrose University.